I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, September 30th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Reeves addresses the Mississippi COVID response. Then the Senate Labor Committee contemplates equal pay legislation. Plus, the JSU Faculty Senate fires back at the state IHL board's vaccine mandate ban. And a conversation with writer Joshua Prager. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves is under mounting pressure to call a legislative special session aimed at jump-starting a medical marijuana program in the state. A special session could also afford lawmakers an opportunity to address ongoing issues related to COVID-19. Reeves was ambiguous on the subject when he spoke with reporters yesterday. Clearly, we have, um, we have some opportunities, should we call a special session, to add Uh, topics. The first conversation and the first decision point is, are we going to add anything uh, beyond medical marijuana? And and the the reason we're having this conversation about medical marijuana is because of the vote that occurred. Uh, You know very well, as I have said, I voted against Initiative 65. Um, I was vocal about that. Uh, But I also respect the will of the voters, and the voters were very clear that uh, a true medical marijuana program is something that they uh, want, um, and and I think we should uh, provide that. Uh, for them. Um, there's been no final decisions made as to if anything will be added and if so, uh, what, they may, what that may look like. Reeves also struck a defiant tone in response to a question from MPB reporter Kobe Vance. Governor, I um, told CNN the other day uh, that deaths are a lagging indicator and Mississippi has one of the highest mortality rates in the nation or has the most highest mortality rate in the nation. Is there anything that you feel like you could have done differently a few weeks ago to try to prevent that? Well, look, there's no doubt that you and, and many others want us to um, shut down the state. Y'all want lockdowns. You want us to uh, have mandates, uh, whether it's vaccines or otherwise. And we believe that one of the reasons that our economy continues to thrive is because we didn't do that in Mississippi. You can go to other states around the country, uh, and you can see their economic recovery uh, from um, the uh, initial depths of the uh, pandemic, 
And it's just nowhere near where ours is. It's nowhere near where other states that have kept their economy open. And so as we've said uh, repeatedly, uh, that our goal in COVID has been the same from the beginning. And that is um, we want to protect the lives of Mississippians while also protecting their livelihoods. Now, every single death that has occurred in Mississippi because of COVID is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. And it breaks my heart that that has occurred. Um, and, and, and that's a fact. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, a total of 9,425 Mississippians thus far have died of COVID-19. Coming up, a push for pay equity gains momentum in Mississippi's Senate. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi remains the only state in the nation without equal pay legislation on the books. That was the subject of a Senate Labor Committee meeting yesterday, where speakers included prominent pay equity activist Lily Ledbetter. Democrat John Horn chairs the Labor Committee. After the hearing, he spoke with Desiree Frazier. I think the speakers did make a a good case uh, that we need a law in Mississippi that protects women's pay. Uh, We have heard all kinds of of statistical data where uh, we understand that there is a wage gap Uh, between male workers and female workers, and in particular, black female workers uh, are at the short end of the stick and and other women of color at the short end of the stick. We need to address this if, if, um, indeed, Mississippi is going to move forward and we're going to to lift ourselves off the bottom. It sounds like from uh, one of the students that spoke, there is a brain drain due to this. Yeah, I, I think that, um, as she put it, it's, it's demoralizing to hear the, that you go through a, a rigorous training to get a professional degree, and because you're a woman, uh, you wind up being offered less pay than your, counter, your, your male counterparts. It is uh, disheartening, and, and um, uh, at least she is committed to trying to stay here, but she also reported to us that a lot of her colleagues in her, her uh, engineering program are, are planning to leave Mississippi, and that's one of the reasons. What's the holdup on getting this bill, a bill, passed? You know, I, I've not been able to put my finger on exactly what it is. Uh, my committee uh, is um, heavily Republican, and, and Democrats are in the minority, just as they are uh, in the, the Senate in its entirety. But we we passed a bill a couple of years ago. We got it out of the Senate, and it got killed in the House. Uh, In the regular session earlier this year, we got it out of my committee, but it was killed in another Senate committee. And it just doesn't make sense to me if, if, as we say, we're being fair and balanced, then let's be fair and balanced. Um, and, And someone who's doing the same job as the next person ought to be able, all other things being equal, to get the same amount of pay. Do you think it has to do at all with Mississippi's race history? And also, uh, we hear a lot of complaints of misogyny. Well, we certainly in Mississippi are often uh, captives of our history. And um, 
there have been some historical discriminations that the state and and people in it have put upon uh, their fellow Mississippians. Uh, and that, I think, probably is a contributing factor. Uh, the issue of misogyny, I won't say it's misogyny. I don't think it's a hatred of women. I think it, it's a, a feeling that they're, they're inferior and, and that men ought to earn more and doing the same job just because they're men. And that, that really is troubling, and I, I think we've got to change that. Isn't that misogyny? Maybe it is misogyny when you think about the policies and practices you put, put in place. Uh, it, it you know, really amounts to, to um, uh, something that's demeaning and possibly uh, a hateful action. Do you think we're going to see a bill next year? Well, Pass. I, I think that this committee is going to put forth a bill uh, in the next session. Hopefully we'll be able to educate our colleagues uh, in the committee as well as on the floor to be able to get it past the Senate. Now, what happens in the House is a whole other story. Are you in dialogue with them at all? Not at this point. Uh, we um, we want to see where it, the bill may not even get referred to my committee. Uh, so we have to take it one step at a time and, and see where it goes. But once we, we see the path of referral, where um, once a bill has been introduced, it's referred to various committees. If it comes to this committee, then I'll reach out to my counterparts on the House side. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Desiree. Coming up, Jackson State faculty leadership objects to a vaccine mandate ban handed down from the State Institutions of Higher Learning Board. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Faculty Senate of Jackson State University is discontented with a ban on COVID-19 vaccine mandates recently issued by the State Institutions of Higher Learning Board. Last week, the JSU Senate put forth a statement urging the board to, quote, reverse its decision on prohibiting a vaccine mandate and work to protect Mississippians and society as a whole by issuing a COVID-19 vaccination mandate for students, faculty and staff. Dawn Bishop McClinn is the president of the Jackson State Faculty Senate. This past summer, the Faculty Senate JSU did a campus-wide survey checking the pulse of a community at the university. And one important question was about COVID. And about 75.6% of our faculty in the survey said that we should have a vaccination mandate for all students enrolled in face-to-face classes and hybrid classes. And it should also include faculty and staff. What was the reaction to that among staff and students? Well, staff, followed behind us and did their own survey where they found similar results. We sent our resolution to the administration, the president, to the SGA president, letting them know how we feel and wanted their support on that. So we didn't get any pushback. We didn't get any emails or calls of concern about that survey, nor about the resolution that we passed. Did JSU ultimately pass a mandate before the institutions of higher learning passed theirs? No, before the mandate, it was kind of Up in the air, our COVID task force was about to hold a meeting, and we had chairs appointed for a vaccine committee before IHL passed the mandate. So we had a vaccine committee that was established, and we were just waiting to hold our first meeting. And the next thing we knew, the mandate came down 
from IHL. The Institutions of Higher Learning's Board of Trustees comes out with a mandate that prohibits universities from instituting a mandate for vaccines. So what was your reaction to that and the way in which it was done? Well, first, it's concerning. I'm in the throes of a research project. About 100 years ago, our first black president of Jackson State, Dr. Zachary T. Herbert, who our health center is named after, he said in a speech, or he made it known to the Jackson State community and the community surrounding the university, that health was first and education was second. And during his leadership at the same time, there was a great flu pandemic. And he said that the university had to make sure they took in all the aspects of providing a conducive learning environment for the students of Jackson State University, that health is first and education is second. And I spoke about this in our opening convention convocation for the faculty and staff, for the faculty and staff and students. And the faculty said it has the same stance. We should follow the same steps that Dr. Zachary Herbert took in the 1900s when he was the president, health first and education second. And so we said even after this mandate was brought down by IHL, we want to especially support and make it known that Jackson State has the only school of public health in the state of Mississippi. And a part of our mission for the School of Public Health is to ensure that we're providing a learning environment for these potential healthcare advocates, healthcare leaders, to work to improve the health populations in the entire state of Mississippi, the nation, and the world. This has become highly politicized, polarizing in our country, let alone in Mississippi. Do you feel that it was a political decision or some kind of decision of ideology? that caused the institutions of higher learning's board of trustees to make this decision to act prohibiting universities from making decisions for themselves? There was no public notice of it. So that's very concerning. We are taxpayers in Santa Mississippi, and everything we should do should be done in transparency. We should hold our leaders accountable. And it's very concerning when you're working with students. And Mississippi is saying that our students are our main concern. Our president revealed his strategic plan on yesterday, and he said that student success is really at the center of what we do and is a major goal of his new plan. And he also includes the importance of mental health. So if the state of Mississippi really wants to support our students, I don't see why IHL wouldn't pass a vaccine requirement for all students. If we truly want to be student-centered, what's the problem? What better way to support our students and their whole overall well-being is to do this? Have any representatives of the university been able to meet with members of the IHL to to discuss this further? Well, I know Jackson State has raised the concerns with our president directly. I do know we put in our resolution that we're asking them to reverse their decision. I think it's important for IHL Board of Trustees to really listen to their constituents. I think that they can listen to those of us who are working in the trenches. We are in the battleground. We are here battling COVID every day in our classrooms, on our campuses. And you look at the makeup, the Board of Trustees for IHL, they're businessmen and women. They're in their offices. They're not in our campuses. So I would welcome the opportunity to speak with them. Um, Our doors here at Jackson State, our campus, our classroom is open. I would love for them to say, can we attend a faculty senate meeting to hear what our faculty are saying? You should also note that the 
organization called the University of Faculty Defendants Association of Mississippi that is composed of faculty defense presidents, we have reconvened. We were um, provided with the Constitution when they first started meeting in around 1998. And this Association of Faculty Senate Presidents works to address all matters brought before it by the um, Council of Faculty Senate Presidents to address issues that are relevant to our campus. This is a benefit of each other, primarily, you know, to see what common interests that affect our students and our faculty on our representative campuses. Dawn Bishop McLean is a professor of psychology, a researcher, and the president of the Faculty Senate at JSU, Jackson State University. Professor McLean, thank you so much. Thank you. You have a great day. Coming up, a conversation with writer Joshua Prager. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. Norma McCorvey is better known as Jane Roe. That's the alias she assumed when she became part of the enormously consequential Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case. But Norma's life and her relationship with her daughter, Shelley Thornton, a.k.a. Baby Roe, was in infinitely tangled in ways that defy and confound the ongoing debate over abortion rights in the U.S. McCorvey is the subject of The Family Roe, the latest work of nonfiction from Joshua Prager. Prager tells us Shelley Thornton didn't know she was Norma's daughter until well into her late teens. She was just shy of 19 years old, and she was walking on a nice sunny day to go get a tan, of all things, when someone jumped out of a van through the parking lot where she was walking and said, hi, I am an investigator. I was sent to find you by your birth mother. And Shelley who is Shelley Thornton, who is the Roe baby. She was initially thrilled. She had always wondered who she'd been born to, and her mind raced, oh, wow, my birth mother would like to find me. Wow, wow, wow. But it turned out that it was a little different than that. It turned out that the person who jumped out of the van was an investigator who Norma had sent to find her in conjunction with the National Enquirer, the tabloid. And they were going ahead with a story about her, whether she wanted them to or not, They finally agreed to withhold her name, but that moment forever changed Shelley. Norma was working with the National Enquirer, so her finding her daughter was a money-making thing for her? Norma was a person who had an insatiable desire for attention and publicity, and she had turned her plaintiffship, the fact that she was Jane Roe, into her living. It provided for her. So she saw in this a financial opportunity. And she decided to do this just after partnering with the lawyer, Gloria Allred, who helped her reach out to the National Enquirer. So she had a publicity lawyer, and this was very difficult for Shelley, knowing that her birth mother reached out to her only, it seemed, because she wanted to sort of make money and be with her on a publicity tour. There are three daughters altogether by three fathers. Norma put them all up for adoption. Did the other two have contact with their mother? So Melissa, the eldest, was the only one who grew up knowing Norma. The second child, Jennifer, only came to know Norma through the writing of my book. She wanted to know who her biological mother was. 
I alerted her to that fact, and she and Norma had pleasant dealings in the last years of Norma's life. Norma was a liar. She said crazy things. Was there any indication that she had mental health issues? Absolutely. Norma did have mental health issues. She twice tried to commit suicide, and this is before she became Jane Roe. She sought help for her depression, and she got help. She was on antidepressants for much of her life, and also all sorts of drugs that were not prescribed to her, but that she simply abused. She even dealt drugs for a time, and most problematic of all, she was a real alcoholic. Why then was she the face for legalizing abortion in the country? Well, the people who were her lawyers, her co-counsels, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, they could not find a plaintiff. It was a very complicated thing to find a plaintiff who would agree to file this kind of a suit. And so they, they went with Norma because they had no other options. There was one woman named Marsha King who actually was everything Norma wasn't. Not only was she sort of educated and mentally healthy, but also she believed in the cause. Norma didn't care about the cause at that time. She simply wanted an abortion. But that woman, Marsha, was not pregnant at the time. And so the court did not agree that she had standing. And so they were left with Norma. When did Norma change her mind and become pro-life? Norma officially switched to the other side in 1995. Roe was the side in 1973. She really, in earnest, became an activist on the pro-choice side in 1989. It was very hard for her that the pro-choice did not really give her a seat at the table. They marginalized her. Part of that was understanding. Norma was a very unstable witness and plaintiff for their side. But also, she wasn't educated. And there was also a class issue, and they pushed her away. And so Norma was very upset by that. And she said, well, these people don't take me seriously. I'm going to make them take me seriously. And that was one of the key motivations for her switching over to the other side. If you spoke to her and she was honest with you as she was with me over and again, what she really wanted was to be able to be pro-choice to a degree. She believed in abortion through the first trimester, not through the second trimester, not until viability as well has it, but also to be able to be gay and out. And that is how she lived um, before her conversion. And the fact that she was made to renounce her homosexuality was really a horror for her. It caused her enormous pain right up until her death in 2017. The timing of this book, after working on it for 10 years, is certainly fortuitous, given the culture of this country now and the case from Mississippi going before the Supreme Court December 1st. Was it just time for it to be released? Were you done with it? It, it was a crazy just coincidence. I worked on this, as you say, for literally a decade, and I had just handed it in when the Supreme Court announced that they would be taking the case out of Mississippi, Dobbs. And it was sort of shocking to me. And so I quickly was able to sort of shoehorn in a mention of that case. I guess one thing I would say is it wasn't a shock to me after Trump's election that this might be happening. He pledged that he would be appointing justices to the court who were um, pro-life, and he did so. What was a shock, obviously, was that he had three appointments. And when Justice Ginsburg died, I knew that there was the possibility that this might happen. 
but it really was just a crazy coincidence in terms of timing. Joshua Prager is the author of The Family Row, An American Story. Joshua, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.